Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR in Plainfield or WGDH in Hardwick or WGDR.org. This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to the Tone Master on 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system.
from planet to planet. Solar system to solar system. From galaxy to galaxy. Good morning, Tonio. <laughs> some people, I've heard that some people find those intros of mine confusing. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so Miles has joined me again. This is our third time together on the air. Yeah. And we wanted to continue uh, in this vein of of what you might include in the general range of conscious communication, but we wanted to extend it into to a broader level, to the level of society and, and the world around us, and, and to address the concerns of how um, human beings interact and communicate together to, to govern themselves and to create um, the things that we need on a collective level. You know, things like democracy or creating rules and structures so that we can... Well, some people think of it in terms of so we can survive, but I like to think that we should aim a lot higher hmm. to the level of really thriving hmm. and making life rich and full and abundant for all of us. Hmm. So those are my my personal concerns in this realm and I think that our current um, iteration of democracy in, in, in the world is really falling miserably short of that and that what we're experiencing in this quote-unquote democratic governing process is a lot of conflict and a lot of disconnection and a, a lack of communication, a lack of, of real listening and um, concern for each other's interests and needs, and that's what I thought we could we could tackle on the show. And this this is a big, broad thing, but I but something that I think is important to the two of us, and I suspect it's important to all of you out there as well. And um, both of us would would really like to invite all of you to join us in this conversation as much as you would like and hopefully 
more. (laughs) (laughs) And you can do that at any point in the conversation by calling 454-7762 or 800-646-9437 and you can join in this conversation. So... We were we were just talking about democracy, and I was talking about how, in comparing it to sociocracy, last week on the show, I played what I th- thought was a really wonderful presentation by Greg Kendrick about his firsthand personal experience of of implementing a what would be considered a sociocratic or dynamic governance model or practice in his own business. And this was before he even knew what sociocracy was. And he later found, discovered sociocracy and realized, oh, yeah, this is, this is what, what I want to be doing. And this is what I tried to do in my business. And, and those of you who were here last week to hear that, um, you know the context Miles didn't hear that show, so maybe we can help him with that. You guys can help by calling in at, at appropriate moments to to contribute whatever you have to contribute. Um, so anyway, I was I was commenting on the shortfalls of democracy, and and Miles, you you had a re, you had a, your own response about what you thought about democracy in that context. So maybe I should let you. <laughs> speak for yourself <laughs> sure so um just just to kind of refocus us so you know last time i was here we talked about conscious communication which is a, a set of tools for communicating um and we just covered um what they were and how they might apply to everyday relationships and when we ended that show you and i talked about um, a, a, a passion of yours, which is also a passion of mine, which is how then would uh, communication skills apply on a political level, or a you know a um, society or community level, or an activist level? Because we have a lot of lot of politi- politically minded and caring, compassionate activists in our community. Yeah, yeah, and I think we need some new new models, new a little more expansion of of that practice, of that ability in this world. Yeah. Um, so so that um, hopefully will be the focus of today's show. Um, if we get some callers calling in with uh, specific questions or examples of how to apply communication skills to any particular dilemma that you're dealing with, um, we, can, we can focus on that. And we would love to do that. We really want to engage. We want this kind of engagement. Sure. Yeah. So if you have a question, if you have a comment, if you disagree and want to challenge uh, something that's said here this morning, please do. Absolutely. Please. <laughs> um, so I just want to remind uh, listeners who aren't familiar with with me, my, I'm, I'm Miles Schertz and I live up in the Northeast Kingdom. Um, of Vermont, about an hour north of Montpelier, and I am trained as a professional mediator. I was trained at Woodbury College here in Montpelier um, back in 1990, and I've gone on to focus my career in the area of communication skills. I work with couples. I did divorce and family mediation for 
about 10 years. And I've recently authored a book called Conscious Communication that, that just lays out some of the skills that I find most useful in um, healthy interpersonal and um, community political relationships. Um, and in the toward the end of the book, there's a section called Developing a Technology for Peace. Um, so I just want to... Um, very briefly read a couple uh, quotes from this section, and the chapter is chapter 22, and the title is Skills for Democracy. Um, so I'll just read a couple very quick quotes, and then that'll jumpstart a conversation here. Um, so on page 298, uh, the idea of democracy is that if each one of us develops to our full potential, our community as a whole will be stronger and more sustainable. So, that's my understanding of democracy. And just to put it in context, you know, we all know from our history classes, it's a relatively new concept, certainly in human society. It's very new. You know, to us it seems... Because our country, the United States, was founded on the premise that democracy can work and democracy is a good idea. And because we have so far, um, at least in the eyes of the world, succeeded as a culture, um, there's a there's a assumption that democracy is just uh, obvious and the way everything works and the way everything should work. And it's helpful to be reminded that um, this experiment, the United States, as a as a country founded on democracy is, uh, you know, just over uh, 200 years old. It's not a very old experiment. And my judgment is that we're still learning how to do democracy. It's a, it's a beautiful ideal in which, as I just read from the book, each, if each individual is allowed to be themselves and to be, live up to their full potential, the whole becomes stronger. Whereas, you know, if you look at what we came from, at least in Northern European society, and uh, a lot of us from North America now have our roots in European culture, it was a culture of monarchies. And feudalism. And feudalism, where the, the, uh, the people that mattered were the people that had power and wealth, and, the pe and everybody else was just sort of pawns in the game. So we've changed the assumption in a, in a dramatic way, out of, I think, what most of us would agree are beautiful ideals, that each person matters, and what's more important than each person mattering is that when each person is whole and strong, they can contribute more to society, to the, to the bigger um, unit of humanity. So then, perhaps it, it comes down to how, how can people be best empowered to be who more fully who they are and to be strong in themselves exactly um, so the next the next quote I think uh, starts to head in that direction um, it's on the next page 299 and it says if we want to realize the self-evident truth in quotes that all men are created equal in quotes and I think most of our listeners will recognize um, those quotes from the Declaration of Independence we have to develop tools that enable us to include each other and make room for our differences at the same time. So to me, that's the essence of it, is that, so if, 
each person matters. Then what happens, and each person's a, a unique individual, then what happens is we have to deal with how do we get along with each other if we're all different. Mm-hmm. So the old model of, of community and society, and by old, in this case I'm referring to not pre-democracy, but um, maybe back in the 50s, the 1950s, um, maybe a half century ago, um, the century, the decade that I was born in the 50s, the assumption was, <clears throat> the emphasis was not so much on people being individuals, but it was on conforming to um, set scripts and role models, you know, roles that people were playing. And when your focus is conformity and following a role, there isn't a lot of conflict. The beauty of those the the structure that we had in this culture back in the 50s was that it minimized conflict outer conflict outer conflict yes. sure sure i mean what what the price we paid for that level of harmony was that people had to um to uh, bury their individuality yes and so what happened you know one one simple way to describe what happened began in the 60s and i think is still um, very much exploding in our society and throughout the world was an emphasis on individuality. And where we are now, in my judgment, as a culture, as a people, is that we're highly individualized. There's a very strong ethic and focus on each person being allowed to be an individual person with their own feelings, their own needs, their own values. And we've lost sight, in my judgment, of how do we then contribute to the whole? How, what what connects us to something larger than ourselves? And my judgment, the the root of pure individualism, just becoming a stronger and stronger individual, is a dead end because where it leaves you is isolated. And I think we talked about that in our last uh, conversation here. Um, so this is the challenge before us now. And the, and the simple, you know, one simple way to enter that. Um, conversation to kind of bring it into focus is we don't do well with differences historically we separate ourselves from people that are different from us if they have a different belief if they have a different value if they have a different culture a different skin color um, so many ways that we we isolate we separate ourselves and we divide ourselves because that's how the old paradigm worked is is if somebody was different you you made them the other and the democracy, that's not the idea of democracy. The idea of democracy is inclusion, as I understand it, at least the level of democracy that I like to believe in. Every individual is included as part of the whole. And in order to do that, we have to find a way to allow for our differences and still be part of the same community. Well, my, I guess my understanding of democracy, and, and it's probably very limited and, and inaccurate in many ways, is that it's intended that all all members of of society are represented in the democracy that minorities elements are represented however one of one of the the problems that i see in it is that there's there's this potentiality for there to be a a, a kind of a tyranny of the majority over the the, the various minorities or or lesser represented groups sure. in society. So, yeah. So that's one of the areas where I see major potential flaws in democracy, and I don't really see a 
good, healthy mechanism in the de democratic system for addressing that, whereas I know the sociocratic model actually makes, a very, makes very direct attempts to address those specific issues. And I think you're absolutely right about democracy being a very young concept and that in, in many ways, I mean, just looking around us, we are really in, in, in our infancy of um, our practice and understanding of what is possible with democracy or any, any kind of um, representative governance. And, and, and another fundamental problem I, th I think exists in democracies is that with a representative democracy, you have large groups of people being represented by very small numbers of people. Mm. And that always um, causes potential problems. Sure. So, Whereas one of, one of the issues in, in sociocracy is, is they talk about maintaining small groups and, and having <clears throat> a system of linking groups to levels of groups so that there is a, a maintaining of connection within the entire system of governance, but that you don't end up in situations where you have, like, let's say in the state of Vermont, we have a little over half a million people with one single representative in in the House of Representatives mm, mm. to represent them. And, yep. and there's, I mean, just looking at that, it's hard not to see a potentially fatal flaw in, in, in that. Sure. So, I, I don't care what w word we use to describe um, mm -hmm. a model of, of governance. Um, I, I've always been comfortable with the word democracy because I think we're just beginning to learn what it really means. Or what it could be. Or what it could be. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I like it because it's, it's embedded in our culture. Um, I think all, it's very American. I, I think arguably it's, it's the, probably the most... When I think of what's American, we don't have our own food. <laughs> we have our language, but we got that from England. Um, what do we have that's uniquely ours? Democracy, I think, uh, the United States can make a claim... Not, not that we invented it, but that we are the champions of it. And, when, and you'll notice, for example, when we, <laughs> when we launch a military strike against a foreign government, we do it in the name of bringing democracy, which I have a lot of um, concerns about, but we won't go into that right now. Um, but so anyway, the point is that I'm comfortable with the word democracy as long as we recognize that what we see around us now isn't isn't the the full thing. It's a it's a it's an attempt. Um, so you're talking about representation, and you're talking about majority rule, or uh, the way we do democracy in this country is that we vote, and whoever gets the most votes win. So in in conflict resolution terms. Um, in, in the terms that I was trained in as a mediator, that's called majority rule. Mm -hmm. And it's a very simple way to do democracy. It's the most elementary way, right? Whoever, whoever gets the most votes wins. Who, whatever the majority thinks should happen, that's what will happen. Arguably, I think it's definitely a step above having a monarch or a, or a 
autocratic ruler make the decision for the people. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's an infant step. It's a tiny step. It's a baby step. And I've always felt that um, a much more um, powerful mechanism uh, for real democracy is consensus decision making, where there isn't a majority rule, but everyone has to finally in the end agree before something can uh, happen. And I have experienced consensus, I've worked with it, I've trained people in it, and it's very challenging, it's very difficult to realize it. And the larger the group, the, the more challenging it becomes. Yeah, yeah. And we have a caller. Welcome, sure. you're on the air. Hi, Tony and Miles, this is Eva. Good morning, Eva. Hey, Eva. Hi, just a quick thought before I have to jump in the car. I guess for me, this, uh, these larger relational issues feel to me just like huge mirrors of the smaller ones that you were talking about before, Miles, in the earlier programs. And where I get stumped is that it feels like most of us are raised in some way or other in a hungry ghost relational model, a model of impoverishment, Mm. um, shame-based and fear-based to some greater or lesser extent. And we're not, as, as long as those are the basic motivators for our behavior for the rest of our lives, how much, however much we learn to look like we're functioning well, um, that seesaw of self and other, of autonomy and intimacy, um, of, of recognizing the other and remaining oneself um, doesn't tend to happen very well. And I don't know where we intervene since then we grow up to be the people who raise children in that same way. (laughs) How we change these basic relational logics, these lenses that we see through on any kind... It seems that you can come up with any system of governance... And if it's basically being used in self-protection from this stance of shame and defense, it goes the same direction. Mm. So not not meaning to be a big downer, but... No, that's a, br- that's a beautiful point and, and critical to bringing into the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Eva. Um, may I... Please. Take off on that? So, um, in the... Intro to, to my book, Conscious Communication, I was just looking for it, but I couldn't find it. Um, one of the statements I make is that we're not going to change our practices. We're not going to change our social, cultural practices or interpersonal, the way we relate to each other interpersonally, by legislating new... Mm-hmm. Um, we can't legislate democracy, I, I believe. We can... You know, I don't know where the limits are to legislation, and to some degree I, I support that process. But I recognize, I think what you're saying, Eva, is that it, there's a mindset, there's a, there's a paradigm. Um, you called it the hungry ghost uh, something. And I would, and Tony and I talked about this briefly just before today's show, the idea of scarcity. That we, if we're coming from a place where their resources are limited and we assume that there's not enough to go around, we're going to naturally be in competition with each other. And I think what Eva's point is that that is our default mindset. Yes, and I think there's a lot of 
sense of guilt and shame that gets it attached to those interrelations. Yeah, so I know we have another call. Let me just briefly say in, in response to Eva that I totally concur. We have to change our paradigm individually within our own thought system. And we have to we have to evolve as human beings. That's what that's what I would call evolution. Mm-hmm. I would too. Yeah. And that the um the, think and of it me, this that happens through practice. Yes. As you said, it doesn't happen through legislation. Yeah. You can't legislate caring. Yeah, that's exactly right. And just just one quick thought here is that if if um, there is enough to go around. If we if we if we succeed in in shifting our internal paradigm from scarcity to abundance, you might say. And I, and I know those just are our perspective. Our perspective. Our I know those are view. those are a little cliche. We could spend a long time, and maybe we will, going into those. But if if we and as we let me put it in a in a proactive sense, if as we shift that individually, um, our relationships with other people change automatically because. The idea of consensus decision-making, let's say, or a conflict resolution model that focuses on each person's individual needs rather than someone winning and someone losing or someone being right and someone being wrong. And those are the, that is the fundamental paradigm shift, I think, individually and culturally. As we shift that, and that's a big shift, that's not a little shift, and it's a hard shift, but as we shift that, what happens is when we focus on what you actually need and what I actually need and to, and pare it down to very basic human needs, we often find that we can both get our needs met without anybody sacrificing. And that's the beauty Absolutely. of the model of conflict resolution. And we just, that's uh, ideal now, a direction for us to head in. And the tools, the skills, are what I'm what I'm talking about. Is how do we how do we begin to go in that direction? Yeah. And I will pick this up when I'm in the car. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, thank Eva. you, Eva. Bye. Yeah. And we have another caller. Welcome. You're on the air. Good morning, Tony. This is Alex. So um, I like the idea of consensus. In fact, I uh, was elected to the school board in Walden when I lived there. There were two other members of the board who, one of them threatened to quit if I got elected. <laughs> and, uh, and I suggested that we try to um, reach decisions by consensus, and if we couldn't, you know, we could vote. And uh, that they were free to vote me down. And we actually, I think, reached virtually every decision by consensus, except maybe one or two in three years. Wow. Um, which I thought was pretty successful. And, and uh you know, there was no penalty for my perspective of, of if, well, we couldn't reach an agreement that, that they vote and vote me down or vote me up or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, but one of the things, and that's how we operated on, when I was a member of the Policy Advisory Council for WGDR. But one of the things I think that people sometimes forget is if you have a model that requires consensus, and there is no backup of, okay, if we can't reach consensus, we can take a vote, then what you have um, potentially, if, um, if everybody is not the same level of commitment to um, working things out, is you have a tyranny of the one of whomever it is that will not agree. Mm-hmm. And, and also the paradigm can be extraordinarily time-consuming. My husband had been on the pack before me, and he just thought, oh, God, I would never, ever do that again, mm-hmm. because that particular pack had um, required itself to resolve everything by consensus, and it was torturous. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when I was a member of the pack, we, Tonio was there part of the time. <laughs> we had some major disagreements about things, um, various people, but we were able to resolve most everything by consensus. I, I mean, very, very rarely did we ever take a vote, but I think people need to be mindful that you can just say embrace, like, oh, yes, consensus is the way to go, but that may not be a, a really wise approach. I, I totally concur, Alex. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, and, and it reminds me of, of one point that I found rather interesting to actually institute in the practice of, of sociocracy or dynamic governance, is that there's a point in the process of, of decision-making in the group where everyone goes, we go around the circle and everyone has a chance to express their objection mm. to things. Mm. And then when everybody has completed their objections, then you, you move to the next step. Mm, mm. And I think that's something that's not being considered in most of these group processes. Mm, mm. Okay, sure. So, you know, I want to address Alex's concern about consensus, and I totally agree. And it's just <clears throat> really worth hearing. I believe it's, it's, it, consensus is like quantum physics, it's an idea that's ahead of its time. It's a beautiful idea. I believe we're heading there. I believe we should head there. I think it's the next level of democracy, maybe the ultimate level of democracy. I don't know. But, and I've also experienced, like, like you're describing, Alex, that it, it often does not work. It's very time-consuming, and it can lead to a tyranny of the individual who blocks consensus. And that's often... What I've encountered is that's usually because that particular individual does not feel that their objection has been heard. Yes. And that's where, sure. that's why I brought in my point yeah. about everyone gets to have their objections heard on an equal yep. level. Yep. And then hopefully those, those individuals who, who tend to hold out and, and hold ev the process up, perhaps with a little luck, a little little goodwill will recognize that they have been heard. Well, well I mean, that's the point. That's the point of, of why in consensus someone can block it is because they're not being heard. And remember, again, the ideal of democracy is that every individual gets to contribute. Every individual has a contribution to make. And if that's true, if that's how we see democracy and that's how I see it, um, consensus does that because every individual gets to have a voice however we need to learn how to work consensus it's a it's not something that happens easily or automatically and it doesn't work well <clears throat> when people come to it with a, a, a perspective of scarcity where it looks like it's a win-lose game where if i get my way other people or if someone else gets their way i lose that's exactly right we have to we have to expand our our perception of of the world around us and our relationships to to embrace the notion of win-win thriving um, models where where everyone's needs can be met, where everyone's concerns can be heard and I honored. I think one of the problems that can occur is if someone, uh, whether it's because they come to things from a, a view of scarcity and they feel like, you know, or, or they feel, uh, you know, come with a, a view of righteousness, of my way is really the right way and people aren't getting it, that um, they aren't necessarily listening to the wisdom of the other people and saying, okay, you know, I feel passionately about this, but uh, maybe I'm mistaken in this case. And that's, that's 
the, the interesting dance that I think needs to be done and why I really like the modality that we came up with and I came up with in Walden and, and that the PAC came up with. Of, okay, we're really going to do a, a good effort in this. And, but the fallback, almost having the fallback kind of keeps it from being used very often, mm-hmm. but it also keeps there from being like endless, unfruitful discussion where there will never be any change because one person is feeling so righteous about blocking things and feeling so, so strongly that their view is the only way mm-hmm. that there really is no ability. It's not a question of them being heard. It's a question from their perspective of them um, being heard and everybody else changing their mind to yeah, their yeah. point of view. Sure. Anyway, I got to go, but just wanted to raise that as like how you do this dance and make it work. Th- thank you so much, Alex. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just really want to comment on that. What what Alex suggested and sounds like implemented in, in Walden um, is, I think, a very wise way to approach consensus and a really very down-to-earth, very practical way to do it. She She said on the board... If, as I understood it, um, look, hey, why don't we try for consensus? If that doesn't work, our fallback will be majority rule. It, everybody should try that because when you get cons- any group, anybody listening to this that's part of a group decision-making process, that could be a family, a business, uh, whatever, try for consensus. Make that uh, a something to strive for. And then absolutely have a fallback. When I train people in consensus, I always urge them to have a backup plan. And it could be majority rule. It could be three-quarter majority. It could be a final decision maker. Uh, There's lots of ways to do backup plans. But if you are locked into consensus and only consensus, as Alex suggested, I think that's not a good idea. Certainly not where we are now as a culture. It's ahead of our time. It's a, it's something we we can be working toward. Um, so I recommend that you try consensus. There's nothing to lose by trying it. And when you achieve consensus, the feeling of strength and unity is tremendous. Mm. And there was an example in the sociocratic model where, in in organizations where there's different levels, there there's groups that meet at certain levels, and if they fail. To come to a consensus, their backup is that that decision will be sent up to the next mm, level. There you go. And what the actual experience of of people involved in these practices is that it almost never gets sent up to the next mm. level because they do once once they realize that that's that's the the backup, yep. they don't want to let go. They they want to really roll up their sleeves and 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 get in there and and really work together to, to solve the issue. Yeah, so w- w- to bring that down to earth, when I was um, doing divorce mediation, which I did for 10 years, and um, a lot of that time I was in collaboration with the Vermont Family Court, uh, the, the, the thing that we would always emphasize with couples in doing divorce mediation is that if you can work out your differences here in mediation, you maintain the power and control. If it goes to court, you give that to the judge. Or if you hire attorneys to represent you, and I'm not uh, suggesting these are bad things, but as Alex just suggested, uh, I think our first attempt should always be consensus. And if that fails, then we have a system in place. Um, I I call it the, the infant democracy system of majority rule or going to court and having a judge decide. But, for example, in, in if you're going through divorce and you can't work it out yourselves, uh, either with or without a mediator, 
then a judge will decide, and the decision's out of your hands. Right, but that that gets into the evolution of 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 humanity issue, and that is when you're when you're decide when you're putting in the hands of the judge who could be looked at as daddy or God, mm. you know, giving up your power mm. to somebody else sure. that you see as being m- wiser than you yeah. or. That's that's something that we I think really need to consider hmm. in our and and the ideal of of the of democracy or or the republican form of democracy in this country was that people need to be well informed hmm. in order to make responsible decisions to make responsible choices and to vote in a responsible and informed way and that's something that that has degenerated considerably in this country. Yeah, um one thing that I want to maintain, uh, suggest if I can find it in the book, I'll just say and, it from and my memory. Go ahead and look. I'm, I want to give out the phone number. Okay, there you go. Please call us with 454-7762 or 1-800-646-9437, 646-9437. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you join in the conversation. Um... So, I can't find the quote, but the the idea is that this goes back to our striving for individuality, and I think we've made we've mistaken individual power, and it goes back to Alex's comment on consensus decision making, which gives potentially every individual in the room power to stop anything they want to stop. Um, I think we've confused democracy with that, with the power of the individual to stop, to do whatever they want to do, regardless of the impact on other people. And democracy, I think, if we reframe it as how do we work together so that everyone's needs can be met? And in again, that's the basis of, of mediation, conflict resolution, the new the new theories of conflict resolution. And keep in mind, when I say needs, it's this is getting a little technical, but it's really critical. Needs are different from strategies or ways that we want our needs to be met. So we all might have things that we want or ways that we want things to go or happen. And those are simply strategies for meeting basic needs. Like say, for example, my need is uh, on a day like today with a little snow on the ground outside, my need is to be warm, to have a warm place. There There are different ways I can meet that need. If my only way that I can meet that need is uh, to be in your house, in your living room, standing by your wood stove. That might not work for you today. So I need to expand my range of ways that I can meet that need for warmth. And once I do that, we can negotiate. We can find ways that we can both get our needs met. And there's also ways of of asking for those needs. Like some people's approach might be to ask, you know, genuinely ask sure. if they'd be willing to share some space in their home. Other people might just, I need this and I'm just going to take it sure, by hook or by crook. Yeah. So, I mean, that's part of the communication skill model that we talked about last time is uh, assertion is the skill of making direct requests that are not demands, making your needs known to other people. Very important skill to know. And very few of us know how to do that. Right. Without... Uh, Things like shame and guilt. Without shame and guilt or withdrawal and, and, you know, passive-aggressive not talking about it. So we could talk more about that, how to ask. But the point is that there is a way often that that all people's needs can get met. Once we 
use a little skill and develop a way to articulate what are ba- what are your basic needs right now that aren't getting met and if we approach decision making uh, if we approach problem solving from that angle it's often true that everyone can get their needs met and then we're not locked in a struggle over who who gets to win or whose way is right and that's the key to what I think of as democracy. And so you can't have democracy. Democracy is not simply you get whatever you want. Democracy is how do you get what you want and the people around you also get what they want. And if that may sound like self-sacrifice, think of it like this. There's no way you, you, me, each one of us are not independent of everybody else. We can achieve a high level of independence. High, I can have my own car, my own house, my own money, but ultimately I do need other people for something. And if those other people aren't happy because their needs aren't getting met, it's going to impact my life negatively. So it's actually in my best interest <laughs> that the, the people around me are also getting their needs met, especially if I care about people, especially if I have family or I have friends that I care about. Of course, I, I want them to get their needs met. And that's the idea of democracy is that how can we all be involved and included and recognize that any decision I make, anything I do to meet my needs, is going to have an impact on someone else. So that doesn't mean that I minimize and diminish my needs. It means I recognize my needs and I try to take into account your needs. How can we accommodate all of our needs together? And again, this is one of the shortfalls that we're experiencing in our country in that we basically have a Congress and a House of Representatives that are full of individual people who are holding up the process. Yeah. So we have, it's instead of just having one person, we have a lot of people yeah. and they're doing the same thing. Sure. And it's and we're experiencing this gridlock. And there are people who are getting to the point where they're thinking, well, maybe democracy was designed for gridlock, mm. so that we actually wouldn't have any um, decision making made from on high mm. and that eventually we would have to revert back to ourselves and the sense of taking individual self-responsibility and and at the core and ultimately at the core of any successful democratic model uh, of governance each individual has to take full responsibility and it's not just about getting our own needs met at the expense of others, but it's full responsibility means recognizing our place in the environment in relation to everything around us. Yeah, and just to refer that to what we talked about at our last show together, the the danger of defining where we're going in those terms is that it sounds like something I should do, something if I want to be a good person and live up to my ideals, then I have to care about the people around me. And I think I like better to, to acknowledge that as an individual, I don't really, I, I, I would prefer sometimes when I'm in my little self, I just want to get what I want and I don't care about anybody else. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we live in that place some of the time, if not most of the time. And so when you hear Tony or I say, well, we just have to be c- care about the people around us, 
it's a stretch, and it feels like something I should do, but I don't want to do. Right, and then that enters into the realm of guilt and shame. And then I feel guilty and, sh- and sh- ashamed if I don't. So I always like to reframe that right off the bat for myself, and I hope for the listeners this could be helpful to you. It's not that I'm sacrificing by considering your needs as well as my own. What's actually happening is that I free myself from my isolation when I do that. That when I consider your needs as well as my own, I automatically, instantly feel and become part of something bigger than myself. And for the moment, in the moment I do it, it can feel difficult. It can feel challenging. It can feel like a stretch. And it can feel very scary. And it can feel scary. It feels like I'm giving up my self-protection or my self-interest. In fact, what I want to remind everybody, and hopefully people can recognize this, is that a huge part of my self-interest is belonging to something bigger than myself. And a huge need that I think all of us have is to feel connected to people around us, to to a community, because the nature of the human being is that we are the naked ape and we're very vulnerable. And the notion of being the, the rugged individualist who can stand alone against the world is is i think of a, uh, a very r- romantic highly idealized romantic and and very false notion yeah. i don't think that works at all no it doesn't and i you know i would argue that we have an epidemic of loneliness we have mm-hmm. an epi- epidemic of isolation and how you look at our consumerism in our culture what's driving it what's driving drug addiction you could you could probably highlight many causes, but the the one that I like to boil it down to is that we feel isolated. We feel disconnected from the world around us. And the the immediate remedy for that is to is to consider other people's needs <clears throat> as well as my own. It doesn't mean I sacrifice my needs. It means I advocate for my needs and I listen to and become an advocate for the needs of people around me. Even if they seemingly impact on my needs because what I get out of that, what I get about caring about other people and what they want and how they feel is I get connection. Mm. And also, even if we're not consciously, deliberately trying to to gain that kind of sense of connection, if we're willing to listen to other people's needs, we can engage in creative problem solving. So, that can be very satisfying because our brains get these 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 juicy hits of dopamine <laughs> when we are are engaged in these problem solving things so that that could appeal to the more selfish individualist individualist uh, um, approach to these situations well, and a direction that I would really like to take this conversation i don 't know if we will or not or if people are interested, but it 's more in the activist mode where sure. where you have group interests pitted against other group interests yep. and and resolving the needs of the different groups or the perceived needs or the perceived values yep. of those different groups. Yep. That's where things get really sticky. And because of the way democracy in, in this country is not working particularly well, we're still in the infancy of that, we don't seem to have any good models to approach these um, conflicts, these apparent conflicts where we have very entrenched interests duking it out and we experience either gridlock or continued 
um, destruction yep. of of the world around us. Yep. So how 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 do you see us moving in that direction? Great. Yeah. Let's focus on that. Um, I want to bring us back to the base, some of the basic premises, just to kind of ground us in what I believe is going on. We're, we we are currently in a paradigm of scarcity, as we talked about, and and what goes along with that is a sense of other people are are threats to us ultimately because they are competing for the same resources we are. So from that paradigm, from that worldview, that <clears throat> that framework, we're going to end up in conflict over and over and over again. And what I see uh, and our striving for individuality, which we sometimes mistake for democracy, <laughs> has accelerated that. So now it's not just groups, but each one of us is an individual fighting with everybody, every other individual. And we can see that in the in the failure of, you know, the dramatic failure of marriage and nuclear family. So, you know, a 50% divorce rate. It's, it's epidemic. It's dramatic. Um, so where we are, I think, in, in our evolution toward, toward democracy is we have to learn how to include our differences. We've accented them. We've allowed for them. Now we need to learn how to include them and still work together, still live together, still care about each other and collaborate. Because we do. <laughs> because we do care about each other. And we have to live with each other. And we have to. We have no choice. Even if, even if in, mo in the moment we, we dislike or resent or even hate the other person, yeah. we still have to live together in the world together. Yeah. So, so I see that as the, the thrust in the movement is how do we deal with our differences? And we need to learn. It's not something that happens automatically. Um, we can learn. There are skills. There are practices. It is a practice. We have to stretch and grow. We have to stretch and grow. Mm -hmm. We have to stretch and grow so that if you think differently than I do, you are not a threat to me. That's the, that's the ultimate place that we need to get to. So from what, if I like to go down to what's the cause of the, the basic cause of the conflict in the world, or what's the basic cause of a lot of the crises that we're facing today, including the one you just described in our, in our Congress, the, the gridlock, the deadlock. Um, and I believe the cause of all of that can be boiled down to that paradigm, that assumption that it's me against you, that assumption of um, self-preservation at the expense of everybody else. That's a basic um, tenet of our programming, our mental programming. And from that arises all the conflict, all the, you could say, the scarcity, which is driving our dysfunctional political system and our dysfunctional culture and dysfunctional relationships. So we need to look at that and 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 heal that. I call it healing it because I think it's it's a process that will heal itself as the body heals itself. The mind will heal itself if we allow it, if we encourage it, if we create um, environments where our mind can can expand and evolve. And if we don't do that, what we will do is we'll get an ideal, like think of communism, a beautiful ideal. I'm 100% a fan of the communist ideology. Equality, everybody's work matters the same, there is no hierarchy. It's a beautiful concept. And look at what happened to it as it was implemented in the last 
half century. And what we see over and over again is it turns into um, a, 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 a not equal society. It turns into a hierarchical society. It turns into a violent society where people are oppressed often very violently. That has nothing to do with the ideal of communism. It's a, it's a, it's a direction that came about because that we hadn't evolved yet as human beings to embrace that level of idealism. So we can't put the idealism out there and expect everybody to conform to it. That's why we can't legislate democracy. We can't right. legislate equality. What we can do is recognize that the barriers to it exist within our mental framework, within each one of us. And this is where it gets tricky because activism often takes the form of approaching an external force and saying and resisting that force and i believe there's can be tremendous value in that but let the ultimate external force in my mind is your individual ego if that if your individual ego can be seen as the ultimate exterior force in other words it's not you it's something that's taken you over and it's driving you then let's resist that. Let's, let's get a movement that resists that. And we can resist it within our own being, internally, which is the topic that we talked about last month of meditation and spiritual development. And we can resist it externally. When we see the ego manifesting as a huge oil corporation that cares more about its profit margin than it does about the sustainability of the planet, we can resist that. But let's keep in mind that we're always resisting the same thing. It's the assertion of the individual over the community. The ego trumps um, belonging to a greater whole. And when we can bring the, if you want to call it, the fight, the resistance, our activism to that level, then we can really change. Is what one of the earlier callers said is that you can't. It, you you can institute concepts like democracy or consensus or even the new one that you're playing with, so sociocracy. You we can institute those. We can legislate those. We can decide we're going to run by those. But if we haven't confronted our ego, if we haven't challenged our own ego and and its and the tyranny that it imposes on on us and the world around it we'll just end up back in the same place it'll be communism is is you know autocratic government by a different name that's what happened to it and it'll happen over and over again until we change the fundamental paradigm and again to be clear i think that can happen externally at the same time as internally i don't think we have to go all of us into monasteries or caves to accomplish this but if we fail to work on ourselves if we don't address our ego and the and the and the paradigm that it imposes on us, the, the very limited mindset, which again involves scarcity and opposition, if we don't address that within ourselves, we'll end up right back in the same place, no matter what beautiful ideals we're striving to achieve. You know, I totally agree with you. But when you put it that way, all of a sudden I become so discouraged. Because it seems hopeless. Because it seems at this moment, I mean... How long do we have to wait for the cows to come home? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. So, you know, this is the long view. This is the long view. And think about this. When in human evolution, in human history, as we know it on planet Earth, when have we had the luxury? When have we had the peace 
I mean, you know, bombs aren't falling on Plainfield, Vermont right now. When have we had the time, the resources, the affluence, the luxury to take the long view? Not very often, in my judgment. Most of the time, we've been scurrying to avoid an imminent disaster. And right now, I see many disasters on the horizon, huge ones. But at the moment, in my life in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, I have the luxury to take the long view. And I think it's essential because I think part of the the dysfunction of human culture over the eons that we've been working this out on planet earth is that we have not taken the long view and so but because we haven't challenged our ego and we haven't evolved beyond ego-based personalities okay, okay so you, you you said this thing about we haven't cha- challenged our ego talk about how we can challenge our ego in a way that that can move in the right direction. Sure. So, I mean, the, the, there are some models, and I'm not a historian, so forgive my um, fuzzy details here, but I, I love to think about Gandhi, for example. And what he, what he symbolizes for me is nonviolent resistance. And one of the things that I think he's quoted as saying is that when he was confronting, say, a British authority, he would say to that person, I believe that you have a piece of the truth, and I have a piece of the truth. Mm. And I want the truth. And what, by saying that, he, he de-demonized them, he undemonized them, and he made them part of the solution. Mm. And that's, how, that's one way that we do it. Oh, that's great. And speaking of, of including things, this is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, the Magical Mystery Tour, and you are on the air. Well, uh, what a great conversation um, on what might be possible mm. in terms of uh, interpersonal and uh, collective uh, malaise, as it were. I, I was just curious, uh, how would you think of the fact, or what do you think of the, the, the obvious uh, um, context that we're all at different levels of development? Yeah. That's and that imp- being at different yeah. levels of development, we have we interpret and identify with things in 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 ways that aren't integrative or not into you know that don't integrate, but but as you point out, are uh, you use the word ego? Well, you know, ego, right? Is the you know the conditioned pattern that we become um, so you know caught up in. Yeah, I want to interject one quick thing and then. Hand it over to Miles. One of my first teachers used to say, "We have to accept the level that we are at. Mm. We can't fake being at another level. That that's not that's completely out of reality. We have to totally accept where we're. If we're at the level of a cockroach, we just have to accept that. We have to <laughs> humbly accept where we're at, and that's the only way we're going to actually be able to progress." Well, Tonio, that sort of um, begs the question. Well. I'm going to hand it over to. In other words, how do you accept something you can't see? Well, that's 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 a great question, and that's where the practice of meditation and self inquiry come in, because you have to, you have to, you have to still the the speed of of the world around you and the speed of the mind down to a level where you can actually start to look at yourself and 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 see yourself in the mirror. As you are, and that's not an easy thing to do, and it's it's often not a very comfortable 
or pleasant thing to do. <laughs> well, so, you know, you, you're, you're, it feels that's sort of my practice. I mean, I have to look at myself in my own introspective, uh, in the context of my own introspection. And it can be very, very humbling. It, and, well, it is. And if it and, isn't... But, it's in, but, it, but it comes in the face of my interpersonal uh, relationships. In other words, I can't separate my interpersonal relationships from my own um, interpretation of what's going on personally. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're, they're integrated. And also, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't separate what's going on in the objective sense of the fact that, you know, the world um, interacts with me as well. So it's those three things, my, my own uh, personal um, connection with myself, my connection with others, you know, interpersonally, and then my own um, involvement in, 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 in phenomena at large, as it were. Exactly, and that's, I don't know how you would inter- I don't know how you would uh, respond to that. Well, that's that's been the the whole focus of this show. So you just encapsulated the <laughs> the pickle we're in. You mean the pickle? Yes, the t- it is a pickle. It, it is, is a, pickle. a pickle. Well, because well, because evolution is so so it creeps along in such a um, an almost subtle and and inexplicably um, impossible way to see it. Because it's so it's so glacial. It feels glacial. Mm. Well, it goes. It can it can go in those spurts sometimes, but then there, uh-huh. there are long periods of time where it where it can feel like there's nothing happening. Huh. Yeah. So I, I so so focusing on the interpersonal to me is is where where it, 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 it at least I, I have so I feel like I have some leverage. You know, not discuss. I, I can't discuss communism. I can't discuss what's going on in our body politic. I mean, we know that that there's that you know we we can see the, um, the, the 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 delusional nature of it, but it's very hard to um, it's very hard to come up with for me. It's very hard to come up with some kind of a recipe mm. or a formula for solving these um, sort of intractable. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I liked I like what you say that it. it I like that you brought the interrelational aspect to it. The interpersonal. Interpersonal, because my experience, I've done a lot of group work, and my experience is that when you do bring this level of awareness and consciousness in a group setting, you dramatically accelerate the pace of the evolution. Hmm. And I think you're touching on something that is of great importance. Well, I, 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 I don't want to be sound like a cynic, but, you know, there's an old saying, don't, never throw pearls to a swine, it annoys the pig, and it wastes your time. <laughs> well, that, and, that, and ties, that ties in with needing to accept the level that you happen to be at and also being realistic about the people yeah. around you so that you're, you're, sure. you're speaking, you're recognizing where they're at so that you're not wasting idealistic notions mm. on people that need meat and potatoes. Mm. Or it's, and that's part of taking full responsibility for our interdynamic relationships with the world around us. Is that we have to be listening, and if we're not listening, if we're moving through the world like a steamroller, assuming that it's my way or the highway for everybody else, then there's no communication, and there's no 
um, interpersonal connection or dynamics, and there's going to be no evolution. And yeah, well, you know, I, I I swim with a lot of different fishies every day, and that's good practice. Yes, I swim with the fishies, <laughs> and um, and I and you know every every uh, form of a being that I, I encounter ha- has its own unique constellation. Mm. And maybe maybe a really important thing to mention is that one level isn't necessarily better than another level. No, that's not another, at all. That's, see, an- that's what I would say, Tony, that's where you and I, see, Tony and I have been friends for some time. <laughs> we, have, we, we enter into these um, polemics sometimes. It feels like a polemic. Mm. Uh, I think we don't mean to be polemic, you know, it's just feels that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's really just, uh, you know, feeling safe with somebody. I mean, I, Miles, when I, when I listen to your um, uh, perspective mm. and how it evolved over the last two or three programs since I've, you know, I've heard you speak with eloquence and, and, and also, uh, also in a partnership with somebody who's working on the show, um, it, it just, really resonates with me mm. that that this moment uh, and recognizing and feeling what's going on is so important. Mm. Thank you. Barry, we have another caller. All right. I'll uh, hang up and allow myself to uh, enjoy the... Uh, okay, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for that, Barry. And I hope you're on the air with us. Oh, yes. Hello, uh, Tony. It's just Randall. Um, just Randall? <laughs> yeah, just Randall. Uh, truth <laughs> is the first casualty of war, and we should never um, throw truth under the bus for, uh, for the sake of uh, consensus or, um, you know, uh, good communication practices. Um, I, I find this a lot, you know, and I, I hate to, I don't want to pigeonhole everybody, but I'm going to. Um, <laughs> on the left, oftentimes, you know, we, we're so... Um, interested in how somebody feels about the issue um, that oftentimes we neglect, you know, the pertinent facts and the things that are most pressing for everybody's health and welfare. We oftentimes, and and I mean, I noticed this when I was 15 or 16, I used to read The Nation a lot, and I saw that the left is always this sort of splintered thing and everybody gets into their own little groups and it's very insular and, and, and that can be very detrimental to getting the uh, achievements and objectives on that side of the aisle. Now, on the other side of the aisle, oftentimes they don't want to recognize the truth because it's nasty business. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's usually, uh, I don't know, just foreign wars, secret wars over in South America. Or um, maybe maybe it's a nasty truth about their own uh, agenda, like uh, the Republicans way back, you know, as far back as the League of Nations, didn't want to be involved in this um, international legal scheme. Um, And, you know, even so far as up until the 2000s, they didn't want to fund the UN and things like that. So there's reasons to obfuscate on both sides. And I just wanted to say that, um, you know, I'm not sure communication can exist if we don't, um, at the very least, uh, agree to um, talk about factual things. Um, and so truth is the first casualty of war. I'll leave you with that thought. Thank okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Randall. Thanks. Good. Wow. Stirring the pot. So 
Can I, um, I had a response to the, um, the caller just before Randall Barry, and then maybe we can address uh, Randall's point. Um, so for, to, to you, Barry, and to listeners who kind of resonated with uh, some of the things Barry was saying, I just have two quick thoughts. Um, this new direction, let's call it, this possibility um, that we're talking about, maybe we call it the next evolution or the next level of democracy, um, I see it as not having anything to do with conformity. So you talked about, Barry, people being on all different levels. Um, that, to me, is the challenge of democracy, is allowing people to be <laughs> on different levels. And as, as Tonio, you said really clearly, uh, there's no point in pretending to be somewhere where you're not. It doesn't get you anywhere. So allowing, enabling, recognizing that we're all uh, on different levels in terms of our... Let's just... If, if, you, if the, my reference is to seeing the the ego as part of the problem resonate with you, that we could talk about that. We're all on different levels in terms of of our working with our ego, you know, uh, uh, getting beyond our ego. We're all on different levels with that, and as we will be, I think, throughout human history. Um, so part of democracy is to allow for that, to accept that, and um, and it's not about conformity. That was that's the problem, I think, with the way that communism was tried. Was it was an ideal that everybody had to conform to, and that's not going to work. Um, I think individuality needs to be uh, recognized on that level, or nothing will come of it. Uh, and for me, there's a tremendous hope. There's a tremendous promise. It saved my life when I was 19 years old in a Buddhist monastery in Asia, trying to find the meaning and purpose of existence. It saved my life to hear somebody say, there is a point to all this, that humanity is evolving. Those are my words. But that as a human being, we have the potential to become bigger. And I don't mean uh, in body size. I mean, identify with a, a much larger being, a much larger whole than we do currently. We have that potential as humans and we've had teachers through the years this is the this is the spiritual path that I talk about we've had teachers through the years that have embodied that and taught us and pre presented us with possibilities for me that was essential that was a lifesaver to know that there's a point to all this we're going somewhere and it's not just getting my way or or fighting for my little scraps it's it's a, it's something that I'm here to learn that Earth is a classroom. So, whether, however we want to say about it, it's a classroom, yeah, it's hard, it looks impossible, sometimes it's very discouraging, because how can we possibly change human nature? Everybody's in a different place. All that's a part of it. All I'm saying is that for me, knowing that there's a direction, there's a possibility, there's a, there's, you could call it a goal, but it's not a goal in space and time. So it's not an end point that... It's it, a natural evolutionary process that we are part of. We're part of. Right. And knowing that was, meant everything to me. And that's all I think we need to know for now, is that there's a bigger picture here that we don't see, that we're heading somewhere, and we all may get there, and I believe we will get there, in our own way and in our own time. Right, and that's where it's really important to acknowledge that no particular level is any better or worse than any other. It just happens to be where you are, where I am, yep. and it's that's my spot on the journey. Yeah, the, 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 the trick of everybody being an individual and having their own... Um, 
path, having their own beliefs, having is where's the unity in that? You know, that, then we get this extreme diversity. And I think that leads a little bit to what Randall was just talking about on what he called the left side of things. This dispersed, uh, the nature of the left has been so incredibly dispersed. Everybody's going their own way, doing their own thing. And it's very hard to get any kind of unity out of that. Um, in contrast to that, interestingly enough, and I don't know if this is speaking to Randall, but it came up when he called. I think what the right, how they achieve unity is that they go back to fundamentalism. <laughs> And they believe that this is right and that is wrong, and they get unity out of that. That's how humans have always gotten unity. But the problem with that is that it requires an enemy, and it feeds competition. And it's a backward-moving direction. I believe it's backward. Mm -hmm. But what we need to do to, to further the progressive view is, I, is find how do we achieve unity with, by including all the diversity. And that, I think, is the question, and it's a, that would be a great question for us to move forward with. Mm. And maybe our n present caller has something <laughs> to say about that. Welcome, you're on the air. Hi. Um, over the past few minutes, I just, I personally transcended with this conversation and definitely resonate, and I fully agree that the way out of this is through a spiritual answer. Um, and personally, what I've come to, to know when I was about 18, where the purpose for us is, is to evolve to an angelic, angelic realm where we serve others. Hmm. And by serving others, you feel the interconnectedness. Yes. Um, and, and, and the eternity of the interconnectedness with all of life and everything that is to be. Hmm. I think you're right. That that's the direction that we are are evolving toward. Yeah, it's beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, I had this this conversation with I was did an interview yesterday morning with a guy who's pr probably the foremost uh, big cat conservation. Um, person on the planet he, he, he speaks with um, world leaders government leaders and negotiates um, conservation efforts for jaguars and lions and tigers around the world mm. and he was talking about a, a new developing a new model by accident or to his surprise realizing that they had to completely change his perspective of how to approach this in a way that addresses everyone's needs and serves everybody that we're in this together that the fate of humanity and the fate of jaguars which was the specific focus of yesterday's interview are linked together inextricably and at a certain point, when you're dealing with all these challenges in life and these conflicts, you eventually, your perspective evolves to the place where you realize that that's what this world is about. There's just all these different perspectives, and they can be perceived as being either impossible challenges, or they can just be seen, recognized as these really beautiful opportunities for more inclusion and embracing more diversity. 
and I think that's what the last caller was 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 um, speaking about. Sure, and that that um, we could we could um, briefly reference to the Gandhi statement that I referred to. Because um, I believe that's what he embodied. That's what he embodies for me. When when he said to, or was quoted as saying to a British official, "I see that you have part of the truth, and I have part of the truth." Um, I think he was he was setting up a new paradigm for how do we deal with conflict resolution on a political scale. And with the big cat example, you know, I think what you're talking about is that the historical approach is that you. In order to save the big cats, you have to you have to resist or stop the forces that want to kill them, and that's going back to what we talked about earlier in this program. Just to be clear, what I'm saying that is part of the problem. That is part of the paradigm that causes the problem. Is that there is a me and a you, a us and a them, and that the problem is always them. Just recognize that, that every political, almost every political equation gets set up that way. And once you start to see it, you'll see it everywhere because it is how the ego functions. And all I'm suggesting is that that's just demonstrating to us that we're in uh, uh, the old mode, what I call the old paradigm mode. And the old paradigm mode will always lead to the same place. And that's really the... the the challenge of dealing with the ego is that the ego tends to become a prison for us that we're not even aware of. It's like a big blind spot. That's right. We don't recognize the bars anymore, yeah. but they actually keep us locked into a very narrow range of, of experience. Yeah. They limit our horizon to, to tunnel vision yeah. when that's really an illusion. This whole notion of separation is this limiting of of possibility. Yeah. And and what I think what we're really what we're talking about and and hoping to to see humanity and and everyone individually strive for is just the expansion, growing and expanding our our perspective of the range of possibility so that there are no bars, there are no walls limiting us. And that's what the ego tends to do because the ego, one of its functions is to make us feel safe and to function safely in the world around us. And we need to continually be growing and stretching and not allow the ego to dictate to us that we need to stay safely in our little comfort zone yeah because we're not going to grow and stretch that way yeah Let, let's um i just want to say bring this to the that practical example of the big cats because it's something i think it's uh, we can all sort of see and relate to is that the the reason f i think arguably that the big cats are disappearing is that hu humans some of us see them as the enemy they see them as a villain. I mean, that look at our—that's what our ancestors did in Vermont. We killed all the catamounts because they were a threat to homesteaders. They were the enemy. They were demonized, and and that's what the ego does: is it demonizes its opposition, and there thereby justifies killing it, extinguishing it, exterminating it, um, and we do that with people. So the the solution to that problem can't be demonizing the people that are demonizing the cats 
That's all I'm saying. Is it's, and it makes sense when you see it that way, that if we take that route, we're feeding, un- unknowingly, unconsciously, we're feeding the paradigm that caused the problem. The vicious cycle. The vicious cycle. And that's, that's exactly what Gandhi was doing. He's saying, okay, yeah. I have part of the truth, you have part of the truth. There's truth in what I'm saying, and there's truth in what you're saying. There's, I recognize your interests and your needs. Yeah. Let's we can meet. Yeah. In the middle. Yeah. It's kind of like Rumi's thing where, out there, mm. beyond right and wrong, there's a field, and we can meet there. Yeah. And that's that's. I think that's probably the most beautiful way of of expressing the possibility that's available yeah. to all of us. Yeah. Let me, we just have a few minutes left, I think, and let me just read, um, I, I, this might tie a lot together, and I found a section here that I think would be pertinent. So this is from my book, Conscious Communication. It's from the last section called Technology for Peace, and it's from a chapter called Skills for Democracy. Um, and this is a section called Making Peace. Many of us talk of peace when we are in opposition to war. And we tend to think of it as a value. We say that we are in favor of peace and they are in favor of war. So that's what we were just talking about. We set it up as an us against them. Yet this is not a helpful or accurate use of the idea of peace. So check this out. Few people would say that they like war and no one speaks of valuing violent conflict. People who support war usually see it as the only way to establish peace. In that sense, they value peace just as much as we do. The only way we know to have a world without conflict is to have a dominant power that maintains control by threatening to harm any opposition. Our strategy for achieving peace, therefore, has been to threaten those who appear to oppose us with so much force that they submit to our authority. So, it goes on to talk about that, but the point is that you can't get to peace by demonizing the people who are supporting the war. And a useful beginning place is to recognize that what we all want is peace. We just have a different idea how to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. So, caller, you're on the air. Hi, thanks. I've been listening. This is Jim. I've been listening on and off, but I've been working, so I can't. I didn't get much of it. But I, I don't know whether you've covered within the dialogue whether you've covered how you deal with people who come with completely, with the wrong facts, with, with the wrong information. And sometimes those people don't want any new information. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you could answer this question. It's certainly a very difficult one to deal with. I, I remember once I was listening to a, an attorney, an expert who'd been down to Guantanamo, trying to down there and I said to him that um, at least my opinion is that what they are trying to get out of the prisoners in Guantanamo isn't the truth it's, they're trying not they're not trying to get facts from them mm. they're trying to get them to tell a story mm-hmm. they're torturing them in order to get them to tell a story yeah. and the guy was very open he looked at me and he said oh <laughs> so that everything he had done, all the work he had done, yeah. was on the wrong paradigm. Yeah. And when you sometimes, I'm not suggesting that what I just said is absolutely correct, but yeah. there are, I could give you many other examples, yeah. but I won't, where you walk in and you give, you, you completely change the nature of the dialogue because you introduce a fact 
like the demolition of Building 7, for example, that changes the whole nature of the discussion. Mm. And this is where conscious skillfulness in communication really comes in handy. Mm -hmm. If you can skillfully navigate your way through conversations by recognizing where other people are at, what the, recognizing clearly what the challenge is. Yeah, it's true. And we okay, have well, thank you. I'll hang up. Well, he doesn't have to leave if he doesn't want to. It's just Randall again. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jim. Yep. Go ahead, Randall. Um, I, yeah, I want to touch on a point uh, before Jim called. Um, I don't remember... How close you came to the point I'm going and to make. And I have to mention, we have two minutes left, so you'll really have to get oh, to your okay, point. Oh, okay, I guess I'll have to hurry. Um, to what extent is science a democracy? Because I've, I've read, you know, articles here and there mm. saying science is very democratic, and then I've seen other ones that say mm. science is not democratic. Um, if everybody, you know, had a, if we had a plebiscite and everybody went out and voted and said gravity is a repulsive force and uh, <laughs> masses throw each, you know, throw each other away, I mean, uh, I suppose that would be a democratic result. And, but it would be the wrong one, because mm. it's not true. Mm. And to what extent are scientists then allowed to be elitists and say, no, absolutely not, you, you folks cannot vote on this, that's wrong. Mm. Um, and I just want to make one more point, and I've, I've made this point to you before, Tonio, about um, uh, certain fallacies that people walk around with this in their head, um, that all love is economics and all economics is war, therefore, thus, all love is war. Um, if you walk around with one or the other of those premises in your head, you are contributing to a really nasty, nasty human fallacy, and it's a, it's a global one. We perpetuate it every day in, in, a, mil in a million myriad ways. And I, I really, one of these days, Tony, I'm going to call in and explain that fully, what I mean by um, that. And, <laughs> okay, and then we would then need forth, to. <laughs> I will refer to it as the Newspeak fallacy because it's very 1984-ish. Mm, okay. Um, and it's the nightmare that we're living in in our society today, as mm. far as I'm concerned. Okay. Okay, thanks so much. Thank Bye. you. Thanks, Randall. Well, th that, was, <laughs> that, that, was, that was a lot sure. said in a very small space of time. Yeah. yeah. Kind of scrambled my brain. Uh-huh. To yeah. where I don't know how to respond. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we have less than a minute, so... Um, what, what can be said in less than a minute? Uh, I didn't follow exactly what Randall was talking about. I appreciated that you said, you know, asked him to come, come on at another time and explain. Um, uh, I mean, I sort of understood what he was saying, but I, it, it was said so quickly that it's, I just couldn't get into it. Sure. I, I just want to quickly refer to, to, to Jim's story about the um, possible torture, probable torture, and interrogation of the of the prisoners at Guantanamo, and that they're not looking for the truth; they're looking for a story. Um, this will this will be a little radical, maybe a good note to leave on. I believe that's what our mind is conditioned to do. Our mind is not conditioned to look for truth; it's conditioned to support its story, and that we each have that going on. This is where. The activism that I'm promoting most here today is an inner activism. It's very active. It involves direct confrontation and resistance, but not so much to an outside force as to your own mind, your own ego, because your mind is not looking for the truth. It's looking to support its story. So just consider that, and I think if you look at that inside yourself, you'll see Guantanamo is just a mirror of that. Mm. And I hope that that helped to address... Um, one of Randall's concerns about addressing the truth. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly we hit on, on both there. 
and we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining me again, You're welcome. Miles. Yeah, pleasure. This has been the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Have a wonderful week, 